2: My guest tonight, a basketball star plays
1: for the Cleveland Cavaliers. He was named the NBA.
3: It's 49ers. September of 2009. A slightly gray-haired John Stewart is the host of The Daily Show. Stewart is welcoming on the crown prince of the NBA, LeBron James who at the age of 24 has written an autobiography.
2: Please welcome back to the program, LeBron James!
3: This interview is taking place before the start of what would be up to that point, the craziest NBA season of LeBron's life. The entire focus of the upcoming season was where LeBron was going to play next season. Uh, uh, your free agency. Right. Are you familiar with our city? Stewart begins handing LeBron small little tokens that represent New York, a bag of Shake Shack burgers, an I Love New York coffee cup, and even... Would you
4: like a Tyrannosaurus Rex vertebrate?
3: LeBron looks over at the offerings laid before him. I got the Shake Shack and a Tyrannosaurus Rex vertebrae. Cleveland can get you into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. (laughs) (laughs) I am Chuck D. This is Shattered, episode four, The Decision. How Donald Trump, Spike Lee, Alec Baldwin, Rudy Giuliani, and the Sopranos teamed up to try to convince LeBron to come to New York and sign with the Knicks. And how, despite all that New York's finest had to offer, the Knicks still failed.
5: I couldn't believe that it didn't work. Not so much because of the Sopranos. I just thought it's New York. How does anybody say no to New York, for God's sake?
3: But he did. More from Shattered in a moment, but first a word from our sponsor.
6: This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more.
3: For the Knicks themselves, there was an incredible amount of work that needed to be done to even be able to have the salary cap space to sign LeBron in 2010. The situation when I got to New York was really incredible. That is Donnie Walsh. In the spring of 2008, Donnie was brought in to become the new team president of the Knicks. There was a
7: lot of negativity when I first went there, and a lot of it was directed at Isaiah. I mean, it was so negative, and he happened to be the target of all the negativity, but it it permeated the whole franchise.
3: Donnie Walsh has likely spent more hours inside a basketball arena than outside one. He was a star high school player at a prep school in the Bronx. In the late 80s, Walsh became the team executive with the Indiana Pacers, building the teams that would compete with Patrick Ewing's Knicks in the 90s. By 2008, though, Walsh was tired of the business and preparing to retire. But then he got a call from the owner of his hometown team. I got a call
7: from Jim Dolan, and he wanted to talk to me about New York. At first, I thought, oh, I don't know, that's a tough job, but you know, and it was. But I thought, you know what, I think I'd like to take this because of my New York connection and the fact that, you know, they haven't been winning. I'd love to go up there and try to turn it around a little bit.
3: To say the Knicks hadn't been winning is an understatement. Under the previous power structure of James Dolan and Isaiah Thomas, the team had one of the worst records in the NBA, with a bloated roster filled with bad contracts and mismatched talent. So when Donnie was brought in, he both had to clean up the mess of the previous era and lay out a two-year plan to prepare for the summer of 2010 when LeBron James and several other NBA stars will become free agents.
7: When I looked at it, I thought that we just had to get better players. When I looked at the cap, I realized, uh uh-oh, I'm going to have to use next year and maybe the year after to try to get down enough to where you can be a player in free agency. Because New York is a place that there's only certain teams in the league that can just say, I'm a free agent team. In order to do that, you have that cap room. So I really tried to cut the
3: cap down so that I could become that. With Isaiah Thomas as team president, the Knicks broke the record for the most expensive roster in NBA history. To clear the space needed to even have a shot at signing LeBron, Donnie would have to gut the roster.
7: You just have to be on the phone the whole time. You just got to be talking to people and trying to get it done, trying to get whatever it is you're trying to lose salary and get it done, get it done. And so I did a lot of phone work, then, and I had Glenn Gronwall who was doing it with me. So there was a lot of work put into that.
3: Donnie started working on the phones like he was a day trader on Wall Street. <laughs> on the Knicks roster with three high-priced centers, Zach Randolph, Eddie Curry and the infamous Jerome James. Stefan Marbury, the superstar for the previous regime, had become untradeable. There were overpaid role players like Jared Jeffries and Quentin Richardson. But on the bright side, there was some young talent to use as sweetener in trades, including Nate Robinson and Jamal Crawford. That was the first time I ever had to deal with, like, whoa, I didn't see this coming. Getting traded from the Knicks. That one hurt. Jamal was one of the few bright spots from Isaiah Thomas' first tenure at the Garden. In Isaiah's final season, Jamal led the Knicks in scoring. But in Donnie Walsh's regime, the only numbers that mattered were a player's contract. And Jamal's contract ran past the summer of 2010. At the time, myself and Zach Randolph were both averaging 20 points, basically. And we're like, oh, we're both going to make All-Star, but we're going to the playoffs. And Myself and Zach had made uh, the highest on the roster. Not counting Steph, of course. They had to kind of share salary to have a chance at the 2010 free agent class. Dwyane Wade, LeBron, Joe Johnson, Bosch. And so less than a month until Donnie's first full season with the Knicks, he sent both Jamal Crawford and Zach Randolph out of New York. In return, the Knicks got what they wanted — a collection of players whose contracts would finish out before LeBron's free agent summer.
2: I remember the night before, Mike D'Antoni interview came out. He was doing, I think, with John
3: Thompson, somebody with TNT. He's like, yeah, Jamal may average 25 this year. The next day, I'm traded. We're in Milwaukee. I'm like, my name's in trade rumors? Like, (laughs) where'd this come from? Donnie kept working the phones. He moved Tim Thomas and Jerome James' historically horrible contract to the Chicago Bulls for Larry Hughes, whose deal ended on the right timeline for the Knicks. The light at the end of the tunnel was beginning to get brighter, And in that light was an outline of LeBron James. But there was still a major issue on that team that had to be sorted out.
4: ...of ESPN.com, Stephon Marbury has been suspended for one game by the Knicks, who are alleging he refused
6: to play Wednesday night against the Detroit Pistons when they had just two...
3: Stephon Marbury had gone from savior to pariah. Under new Knicks head coach Mike D'Antoni, Marbury didn't play a single minute. And reportedly, when D'Antoni asked Marbury to get in the game, Marbury refused. The organization banished Marbury from the team. Former Knicks guard Nate Robinson was a teammate of Marbury's.
6: Like, watching an organization not not fuck with another player like how they should, it really, it run me the wrong way because I'm like, bro, he's, he's a part of our team. Like, what's really going on? Like, like I'm just a young kid trying to figure out, like, hold on, I don't understand why they don't want Marbury on the team or whatever the case may be. So when that was all happening, I was just like, like this, is, this is wild.
3: The organization was able to keep Marbury away from the team when the Knicks were playing at the Garden, except they had no control if Marbury showed up in the stands at the opposing team's arena.
2: God has been good to me for me being able to be able to sit down and watch the game and still get paid, you know, so for me...
3: That is Marbury being interviewed by NBA TV during a Knicks-Lakers game in L.A. Robinson remembers seeing Marbury sitting next to Spike Lee at Staples Center.
6: It was just different, you know, him not being with the team. And then, you know, as we're coming out on the layup line, you know, he's right there courtside, you know, dapping us up, telling us, have a good game, ball out. I remember him telling me, you know, coming to me, this is your time to show what you can do. You know, I know what you can do, Nate. I see you in practice every day. Like, now show him. You know, he always told me, don't let them do not let them do you like, like they're doing me.
3: At that point, he had got to the point, man, where he was just off the reservation. Jared Jeffries was a member of the Knicks that season. He says it was obvious Marbury was struggling with something throughout that year. He was at he was in a position to where he just wanted to prove a point, man, and try to be funny. He had talked to somebody I forget who it was. He was like, "I don't care if this is, I'm
2: still coming to the game." And I mean, you can't stop it. I mean, there's nothing you can do. If he buys a ticket, till they give it to him, he has the right to sit there. So it's just a distraction. It's like the laundry list of things that you saw
3: when you were in New York. Like you can't make up. The list just goes on and on and on. And who knows how big of a factor this was, but the Knicks' entire focus was to convince LeBron James to come to New York, and LeBron and Marbury did not like each other. A few years before the decision, when asked about Marbury, LeBron told the Cleveland Plain Dealer that he couldn't have a guy like Steph on his team. So finally in February of 2009, two months after that Knicks-Lakers game, Marbury was brought out by the Knicks. And then a year later five months before the decision. The Knicks were finally able to make the deal, the last deal they had to make, opening up cap space that would actually allow them to sign LeBron James. I mean, Mike and Donnie handled it really well. Like, obviously, I felt like I was having a really good year that year. Walsh dealt Jared Jeffries, Jordan Hill, and some draft picks, and brought back Tracy McGrady. By the end of all the deals Donnie made, the Knicks roster was drained of talent. Players like Earl Barron, Sergio Rodriguez, and Henry Walker were getting big minutes for the Knicks. But for the first time in 14 years, The Knicks would be below the salary cap going into a free agent summer. The apple of the Knicks' eye was LeBron James. And it seemed like maybe LeBron himself was interested in the Big Apple. Cleveland
2: Cavalier fans, Toronto Raptor fans, enjoy them while you got them. Summer 2010, New York Knicks fans stand, cheer,
3: and rejoice. I know right now. Jalen Rose is making that declaration. In November 2008, nearly two years before the decision, Rose had the confidence to go on ESPN and say that LeBron and Bosh would eventually sign with the Knicks. LeBron to the Knicks was in the air. For years, heading into 2010, it was like a slow-burn detective TV show. Little pieces of evidence building up over time. Exhibit A. Despite growing up in Northeast Ohio, LeBron was a Yankees fan.
8: LeBron always loved to attach himself to winners. That's what he's all about.
3: Tom Withers is an Associated Press reporter based in Cleveland. Withers has covered LeBron since LeBron's sophomore year in high
2: school.
8: He, for some reason, gravitated towards the Yankees at a young age, uh, much like he gravitated towards the Cowboys. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that the Browns have left town for a few years during his His real formative years. So New York being a a town
3: full of winners appealed to him in many ways. It wasn't like LeBron was shy about his Yankees fandom. In 2007, when the hometown Cleveland Indians took on the Yankees in the playoffs, LeBron showed up and held up his Yankees hat to the Cleveland crowd. A smile on his face as booze rained down on him. Let me tell you something. It was built up to the point where I thought it was absolutely happening. Casey Powell, better known as CP, is the founder of Knicks Fan TV, a popular YouTube show dedicated to all things Knicks. In 2010, CP was like hundreds of thousands of Knicks fans under the belief that LeBron was coming to save their favorite team. Because leading up to that, you had Donnie Walsh here who's cleaning up all of Isaiah's
6: messes, all of Isaiah's mess, you know, along those years of mismanaging the cap and draft capital. So Donnie Walsh comes in, he's untying all those knots to position them into that summer where that draft class of LeBron, D-Wade, Chris Bosh, you're going to have Joe Johnson available, Amari, a monster free agent class. The constant failures coming up short in Cleveland. He would, you know, walk off the court, throw his jersey off. You knew he was leaving. You definitely knew he was leaving, him being a Yankee fan. And it just felt like he was going to come here. You know, it, it just felt like he was going to come here. And top all
3: of the reports that came in, I believed it. I, I truly did. November 6th, 2009. LeBron's Cavs only had one game at the Garden that season. Whenever he would play in New York, LeBron would always pay a certain reverence to the Garden. There was all this hype surrounding the game. This impending free agency
4: certainly on the minds of Knicks fans who are wishing, who are hoping next summer, as are many teams, an electric...
3: Literally that morning, the city held a parade celebrating the New York Yankees' recent World Series title. Alex Rodriguez and CC Sabathia were still pulling the confetti from their clothes as they sat courtside near Jay-Z and other celebrities. Knicks fans had turned to the arts and crafts to show LeBron their love. There were posters all throughout the Garden begging LeBron to sign with the team. And maybe, in the face of all this attention, it would have been wise for LeBron to lay low. Acting like playing at the Garden was just another basketball game. But then King James wouldn't be King James. Full-page ad, there it is, thanking the fans for welcoming here to New York. Incredibly, amongst all the hype, on the day of his only game at the Garden that season, LeBron and Nike took out a full-page ad in the New York Daily News. The ad was a letter from LeBron. It went on to thank the city for welcoming him back. That New York City was one of his favorite places to play in the world, so he wanted to do something special to show his appreciation. In the letter, LeBron announced that he was hosting open basketball games and indoor gyms for local high school kids across the city. An altruistic act for sure, but not subtle. Speaking with ESPN after the game, King James took one more opportunity to let New Yorkers know how he felt.
2: If you know the history of the game, you get up being in the Madison Square Garden. It's a mecca of basketball. There's so much history that goes on in this building, so um, you should always get up, no matter uh, the caliber of the team you're playing or you know, your teammates, anybody. It's the individual you love to be in this building.
3: LeBron was an active participant in building the King James to the Knicks' hype.
2: LeBron did play into it.
3: Fox Sports' Chris Broussard was an NBA insider at ESPN during the decision. In the fall of 2009, Broussard himself saw firsthand how LeBron played into the narrative that he may go on to the Knicks during a promotional tour ahead of the release of the documentary More Than a Game, a film about LeBron's high school days.
2: LeBron held an event in New York City. His mom was there, all his crew, Maverick. Carter was there I moderated a panel discussion with LeBron I asked him it was in New York City do the Knicks have a chance or how I can't remember how I worded it but he went along with it chuckled and gave a vague answer and a non-answer answer of course but he, he let it sit out there that he might go to the Knicks and maybe he was thinking about it I mean so I think he liked The drama and the way it was playing out and keeping everybody on notice.
3: But having covered LeBron for years, Withers believes that the culture of New York City tabloids inflated the belief that the Knicks had a shot at LeBron.
8: New York wanted LeBron much more than LeBron wanted New York. And I think, to be honest with you, I think a lot of it, and I I don't mean to point the finger at my reporter brethren and, and New York media colleagues, but... A lot of it was media-driven in New York, the Daily News and The Post and others. And I think when LeBron knew the Knicks were coming to town, he knew he could play with those guys a little bit because he had them. They couldn't wait to talk to LeBron about the potential of maybe someday coming to New York and and playing in the Garden. And he was just kind of dancing with everybody.
3: Whoever deserves the blame for the hype, LeBron, the media, Knicks fans, a combination of all three— the idea that LeBron was going to take his talents to Manhattan was pervasive throughout the NBA. Even opposing fans were feeding into the hype. Right now, the chants here at the TV Garden is New York Knicks. And Boston fans getting creative. Boy, you look at In the 2010 Eastern Conference semifinals, Celtics fans started to chant New York Knicks whenever LeBron was at the free throw line. That chorus of boston showering LeBron with Knicks chants, reached the ears of another famous boston who happened to be running the city that the Knicks called home. Come on, LeBron,
2: write the next chapter in NYC basketball history.
3: That is, incredibly, New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. As mayor, Bloomberg launched a city-funded advertising effort called Come on, LeBron, that enlisted New York City's best and brightest to make their case for why LeBron should come to New York. As the good book says, lead us to the promised land. And that's a quote from the King James Version. The Come On LeBron campaign was everywhere, from the big screens in Times Square to the tiny TVs and taxis. The movement included child actors on Broadway. Come on, LeBron. We got a seat for you at Billy Elliot. Reverend Al Sharpton holding a basketball with come on LeBron stickers on it. Come on LeBron, this is Reverend Al Sharpton. Come on to New York. You scared I can beat you in basketball? I got game. Even strippers were doing their part. Scores, the famed strip club in Chelsea, which is not too far from the Garden, offered LeBron free food and free lap dances for life. Now that wasn't a City Hall sanctioned effort, but it just goes to show you how motivated New York City was, in convincing LeBron to come. You had local reality television celebrities joining the movement.
9: Hi, LeBron. I'm Ivanka Trump.
8: I'm Donald Trump Jr.
3: That is a Facebook post from Ivanka and Donald Trump Jr. Sitting on the set of The Apprentice.
9: Please come to New York. Come on, LeBron. If you come to New York, you'll be king of the boardroom, as we know you're already king of the court.
8: We need you to play in the greatest city, in the greatest arena, for the greatest fans anywhere in the world. You can do it.
9: Come on, LeBron.
3: It wouldn't be too long into the future that Ivanka and Don Jr.'s father would continually personally attack LeBron on Twitter. But in 2010, the Trump family was part of the movement to bring LeBron to New York, and the future 45th president would play even a bigger role in that effort. Our
1: interaction with President Trump was extremely unpleasant.
3: But we'll get to that story later in the episode. See, in 2010, the greatness of LeBron James transcended a simple basketball transaction. The entire effort escalated from something contained in the the world of sports into an arms race of city versus city. LeBron was so huge that his presence alone would provide an economic boost in whatever city he called home. Tom Withers.
8: You know, not only would he sell tickets, but he would bring millions of dollars to the economy, which is why everyone in Cleveland was just bracing themselves for the possibility of him leaving, because this is a place that couldn't afford to lose an asset like LeBron because people knew what the economic impact would be.
3: And as New York City was using star power to convince LeBron to come to the Big Apple, other cities tried to do the same thing. Unfortunately, Cleveland didn't exactly match up with that department. A few months before the decision, the city got together a super team of local TV and radio celebrities, politicians, regular sports fans, even a furniture salesman, and produced this treasured piece of history. We say LeBron. we say we, say we really need you. Really to the tune of "We Are the World," Cleveland created another iconic ballad titled "We Are LeBron." The song focused on how none of the bigger markets would ever love LeBron like Cleveland loves LeBron. And the city would do anything to keep him. It even included some New York City slander.
7: New York's overcrowded. Those people are unbearable. And, and don't, don't forget, forget the Knicks and nets are, are terrible. terrible.
3: I mean, it's, it unfortunately makes me feel so embarrassed. Brittany Van Horn is a comedy writer for TV shows and a native Clevelander who has particular fascination with the We Are LeBron song. It's just the saddest thing to think. They thought that might be the thing to keep LeBron. It's like a really sad, ragtag little group of local celebrities. Nobody in it can sing. Some like local politicians. It's just like, it's, The most overt, like, display of desperation. And you could, I mean, it makes you sad because you can really tell, like, how much LeBron meant to the city that they thought, like, let's let's sing it out. Let's let's get him to stay with this. Now, We Are The World was put together to fight famine in Africa. We Are LeBron was put together to convince a basketball player to stay with his team. There's a gap in importance between the two pursuits. But again, LeBron's free agent summer of 2010 was unlike anything ever seen before in professional sports. The question of where is LeBron going to play next season even reached the most powerful person in the world, President Barack Obama.
4: He's actually asked a couple of times in the lead up to this himself, right? He does an interview with Marv Albert, all of a sudden, the president slips into, you know, like assistant general manager of the Bulls, right?
3: Robert Gibbs was an advisor to President Obama starting all the way back when Mr. Obama was a state senator in Illinois. In 2010, he was the White House press secretary for the Obama administration. As part of TNT's coverage, Marv Albert is sent to the White House to interview America's basketball fan-in-chief, President Obama.
4: Could you, on behalf of the Bulls, throw in perhaps a night in the Lincoln bedroom or... (laughs) <laughs> right on, Air Force
3: One,
2: <laughs> you know. The
3: oh, 44th know president one. still has a youthful look to him. His hair, still more black than gray. Marv asks, what team should LeBron pick? The president first prefaces his answer, saying he doesn't want to meddle, but. I will say this, Rose, Noah, you, you've got. Well, a pretty good crew. It's uh, a so, pretty good yeah, core. Yeah, uh You know, you can see LeBron fitting in pretty well. But as Gibbs tells us, the emotions were so high surrounding LeBron's upcoming decision that the president even got blowback for answering like the Bulls fan he is.
4: Early June, he does this again and gets a and kind of walks it back a little bit, this idea of like, well, it'd be great if he committed to Cleveland. And I think that's maybe a little of the politician in him and also probably realizing that first answer might have been a little too truthful in terms of you know what he wanted to see and not taking into account that you know, Cleveland is, uh, is a place that um, we all wanted to see do better.
3: The question of what President Obama thought LeBron should do was not just contain the interviews with Marv Albert. Political reporters asked the very same question during a White House press briefing that took place the day before the decision.
4: I have an issue of transcendent importance. Where does the president think LeBron James should play his basketball? The world outside of the White House press corps collides even with the White House. And, you know, I think what brought that question on was the entire world was waiting to watch the outcome of the decision, including the president of the United States. We'd see each other a bunch during the day and you just, you know, LeBron had done a, a wonderful job, at least we all thought then, of building up this suspense and excitement. And I'd seen him that day and we'd talked about it. And, uh, and you know, he was back to thinking, yeah, you know what? They, They've got a good team. They've got a good core. Derrick Rose, kid, is an all-star. You know, future MVP. Um, Noah. It's again, again, a great young core. I think the president still believes that uh, he would look quite good in a uh, in a Bulls uniform. Yeah. I hope that does not lead to NBA tampering charges because <laughs> look, everybody in Chicago is waiting for Jordan to come back. Right? He and other Bulls fans wanted it so bad.
3: With the leader of the free world providing a pro bono pitch to LeBron to come to the Bulls, the other teams competing for King James would need to pull out all the stops to get his attention. LeBron had said over and over again the team he chose to play with next would be the one that would most help him win. Of course, though, the Knicks under James Dolan were not good at winning, so the organization wanted to create a video for their meeting to show what they offered LeBron.
9: So they wanted to put together what they called a documentary about how and why LeBron James should come to New York and be part of the Knicks.
3: Rocco Caruso was a producer of the Knicks' pitch video.
9: And the whole angle was that it was going to be more than just him being a player, but Being in New York, he'd be involved with all this philanthropic art stuff, which apparently was something he was interested in. Unfortunately, I guess we didn't do such a great job because he didn't come.
3: (laughs) Now, Rocco may have been an unusual fit for leading this specific effort, since he wasn't exactly familiar with LeBron James.
9: I will tell you up front, you come to the right person if you want to know nothing, if you don't want the sports angle. Because I I know nothing about sports i would confuse basketball with baseball the first thing was to find a director and they wanted someone that had some kind of sports credibility and so i had reached out to jonathan hock who's a filmmaker director and he does a lot of these ESPN 30 on um, 30, is that what they're called? Yeah. 30 for 30. So got him interested and he agreed to do it.
1: Well, look, I'm a Knicks fan, so I wanted to do anything I could. If I could somehow contribute to something that
3: was going to help get LeBron to New York, I was I was all in. Jonathan Hock, a documentary filmmaker known for his sports docs, including Unguarded. In 2010, Hock is tabbed as a director of the Knicks pitch video for LeBron.
1: Yeah, that I might be doing something that actually could help them give back? I mean, to be able to do something that might help a little bit more than just cheering in the garden?
9: We kind of just were thinking, well, how could we start this film? And I don't remember who had the idea. Maybe it was Jonathan, but they thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny if we could somehow start the piece with The Sopranos? Because it had just more or less ended. And so it seemed, oh, it'd be funny if we could re-bring them back. And I just have to say, well, I happen to know Edie. I went to school with her. I made a couple of films with her. I could Send her an email and see if she'd be interested and in what I did. And she said, great, I'll do it.
5: I absolutely remember. I absolutely remember doing it. And what's even more amazing to me is I absolutely remember that I didn't know who LeBron James
3: was. Edie Falco, Emmy Award winning actress who brought to life one of the most iconic roles in TV history. Carmela Soprano, the wife of Mob Boss in the HBO show The Sopranos.
5: I mean, it was early on, so you can cut me a little slack there, but... Uh, Yes, exactly. He was this this, uh, new guy, and I knew that uh, the Knicks really wanted him. But, you know, it was at a time, I guess Sopranos had ended a number of years previous to that. And we get these requests all the time, you know, we certainly did back then. And Jim Gandolfini was like, you know, he did nothing. Somehow he agreed to this thing, which I was shocked by.
9: It was one of those things where they're like, oh, he won't do it, he won't do it. But I think once they said to him that Edie was going to do it and that it was for the Knicks, uh, he said, sure, I'll do it. And we actually shot it in his apartment in New York, um, like the, the, where we were with his apartment down in, in Tribeca.
5: Even just to do interviews about the show, and Jim was just, he wasn't having it for the most part. But to ask us to reprise the characters, nobody had the audacity. <laughs> and because they, they probably also knew there was no way in hell that Jim would do it. I mean, I thought it was a prank when someone said, yeah, no, Jim's gonna do it. And I was like, what? He's not. Anyway, there he was. There we were, dressed as our characters. I remember thinking this can't possibly be happening. This is really happening.
9: If I remember correctly, the premise was is they were friends of LeBron and they were going to try to find him a place to live.
5: And somehow, he's, uh, LeBron is coming to town and, and that we were supposed to help him find a place to stay or something. And I don't know, I guess I suggested something. And then Jim said something like, well, I know a place. And then the shot was of the garden. Like this was his, where he could stay. <laughs> something like that. I don't know. I don't know. I'd be very curious to see this thing.
1: I remember he had a full beard, very big, thick beard. You know, we had a script for them. Didn't know he had this big beard and didn't look like Tony Soprano exactly, or I guess he looked like Tony Soprano with a big beard. But he said, "Well, why don't we do it that I'm in the witness protection program, and we'll take it from there." And so then we sort of rewrote the script around that.
5: Jim Gandolfini would rarely do these kinds of things, and if he did, he would do them very begrudgingly. Like we would sort of look at each other across the room, like, "When the hell am I out of here?" You know, Jim was into this. He was really. There he was, dressed as Tony. And he was like, well, what if I came over this way and did that? I was like, are you kidding me? Really? This is, you know, I so I mean, I guess he must have been a bigger basketball fan than I realized. But um, yeah. And then he had some idea for the way it ended or something. And I remember thinking, geez Louise, whoever would have thought he'd be like all in for this little, you know, weird thing that we're doing that no one's ever going to see and that ultimately won't work. But um, but, you know, he was uh, he was all in.
1: They were such great sports. In The Sopranos, I thought that Edie Falco and James Gandolfini had the greatest chemistry of any actors on television that I'd ever seen. And then to have this opportunity, even though it was sort of a goof, to be with them and to do a scene with them in character was unbelievable. It was so much fun.
5: Well, I just remember that somebody came up with an outfit for me, and I remember being sort of shocked back into a period of time that I thought was over that they had done a pretty good job. There was a lot of jewelry. I think there were fingernails for me to glue on. But then I opened my eyes and there's my husband. Tony came out of wherever he had been uh, dressed. You know, the guy, he's this tall and he looks like this. And, you know, he says this kind of thing that sounds like this. I mean, all of it, within a split second, I'm back to the last, you know, 10 years of my life.
3: It is believed that this skit Edie Falco and James Gandolfini, made for LeBron, was the last time those two performed as Tony and Carmela soprano before Gandolfini passed in 2013. The skit also answers one of TV's greatest mysteries. What happens after the screen cuts to black in The Sopranos finale? Is Tony alive or dead? If this little scene is canon, Tony is alive. Living with Carmela and witness protection, But for everyone who participated in making the secret Soprano sequel, none of them considered it to be a true extension of the series.
5: Well, that's the thing is I never I never went there. I never even connected it to the series in that way. First of all, I never thought more than LeBron would see it for the most part. So I wasn't worried about the ramifications of having, you know, copped to an understanding of the last episode. But, um, yeah, I thought of it as a thing unto itself, that that it was not in any way connected to the series that we did.
3: The soprano skit was just the beginning of the video, an appetizer. The rest was filled with New York City all-stars, from finance to art to politics, all together pitching to LeBron why New York was a special place. It was a collection of luminaries that, if it were today, would never team up together under a common cause.
1: Oh, gosh. Yeah, some of them are in jail. Some of them hopefully are headed to jail. It's, uh... Yeah, it was quite a cast of characters.
9: It became a positive just trying to find everyone in New York that we could have be in the film. And so we got Robert De Niro, Harvey Weinstein, pre-president Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, like anyone at the time, Mayor Bloomberg, uh, Rudy Giuliani.
1: Oh, I forgot about Giuliani, too. There's another one. Giuliani and Reggie Jackson, they were in the same... We did them in the same room, not together, one after the other, I remember that. Mm -hmm. Reggie Jackson didn't want to do it because he didn't think LeBron was in his league of greatness.
9: It was intense in the sense that I mean, literally, I remember Alec Baldwin got in his helicopter from the Hamptons or got in the helicopter in the Hamptons and came into New York because we could shoot him that afternoon, and he so wanted to do this thing.
3: But for all the interviews that Hawk did for the Next Pitch video, the one that still stands out more than a decade later was the interview with the future forty-fifth president of the United States, Donald Trump.
1: Our interaction with future past president Trump was extremely unpleasant. We waited and waited a very long time. He came in, you know, he wanted to to get in and out. And he was not, you know, not very polite, as you might imagine. But what was great was that the day before the shoot, we received a memo from his handlers about how to light and shoot Donald Trump, that you had to use the orange gels at a, a three-quarter angle at a particular height above his head. It was all about how to light his hair so you can't see through it to his head when you're shooting. And and somebody came in before he did and checked it out and made sure that the lighting was to their specs. It's never... I've, I've, I've been doing this since 1985, and that has never happened before or since.
3: More from Shattered in a moment, but first a word from our sponsor.
4: Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right
8: You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service that you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
3: Heading into the decision, the expectation all season was that LeBron would go on a cross-country tour. Fly into New York, Miami, Chicago, L.A. Meet with the teams in their home cities. But as Fox Sports' Chris Broussard says as the intensity around LeBron's pending decision increased, the media discussion about his travel plans were turning into a massive negative.
2: As the free agency approached, the coverage of it was getting kind of out of hand. And Woj, who at the time was writing for Yahoo, he had written a column. It was making LeBron look like an arrogant, you know, kid that just wanted everybody to fawn over him and beg him to come. And when that really wasn't the case, but that's what it was beginning to look and feel like. And that's when Maverick Carter came out and said, they're not going to be a tour. We're just going to, we're not touring. We're going to meet in Cleveland at this office and that'll be it.
3: Maverick Carter, LeBron's business manager, made that call about a week before the start of free agency. That damaged the Knicks' position. Who were hoping to sell New York to LeBron, which would be harder to do while sitting in an office building in Cleveland. The team had been planning to pitch LeBron during the celebrity-filled dinner party in a Manhattan High Rise. The event was to be catered by a world-renowned chef. Instead, the Knicks, as well as the five other teams competing for LeBron, chartered Jets to Cleveland as the King held court at IMG's headquarters.
5: Surreal scene all day here in downtown Cleveland on the corner of East 9th Street and St. Clair outside of the IMG headquarters.
3: Over the course of the first three days in July, LeBron would meet with six teams. The Knicks, the Nets, Bulls, Cavs, Heat, and the Clippers. The Nets and the Knicks got meetings on day one.
7: So I'm being squired around in a wheelchair during the free agent part of it.
3: A few weeks before the Knicks' meeting with LeBron, Donnie Walsh had neck surgery that put him in a wheelchair. The recovery process damaged his ability to plan out how the team would pitch LeBron. When the venue for the meeting got changed to Cleveland, Donnie says the Knicks didn't even know if he was going to be able to make the trip, but he did manage to wheel himself on a Dolan's jet.
7: Going to Cleveland, when we got off the plane, and that was a whole story getting me on and off the plane. When we got off the plane, we had these big station wagons, you know, black station wagons. I felt like the president was coming to lebron's office i really did and there were people there they're all waiting you know the press was there and it was a lot different than i thought it would be and i'm in a wheelchair
0: i think one thing that has to be
3: said in fairness is that david aldridge is a longtime nba reporter having worked sidelines for tnt's coverage for a number of years aldridge is now a sports columnist for the athletic Unfortunately, at that particular
0: moment in 2010, Donnie Walsh was sick, but it really diminished him. And I know he took part in the meetings, but Donnie was a very dynamic executive and incredibly well-respected and well-regarded, I think, around the league. And I always have believed if Donnie were 100% and could really have made the the pitch, it's an unexamined
3: part of why I think the Knicks' pitch fell so flat. It was a packed meeting room for the Knicks' LeBron Summit, The Knicks contingent included owner James Dolan, GM Donnie Walsh, assistant GM Glenn Grunwald, head coach Mike D'Antoni, and former Knick Allen Houston. With LeBron was his agent Leon Rose, the current Knicks team president, Maverick Carter, and LeBron's longtime friend Randy Mims. After some polite hellos, the DVD containing the Knicks pitch video was popped into the TV. It has been reported that LeBron laughed Seeing a Soprano skit made just for him, but then the person leading the meeting, according to Frank Isola, reporting for the Daily News at the time, was James Dolan. Jim Dolan did a thing where, when they were going to have the meeting with LeBron, he insisted on being the guy that led the meeting. And
4: you know, it's not really reading the room. And you know, so Jim Dolan is there with cue cards. And uh, Jim Dolan is very good up on stage in terms of interacting with the crowd. He's not very good in that kind of setting. It's out of his element because he doesn't really know the sport. And apparently he sat there in front of LeBron with cue cards, reading off the cue cards. And,
6: um,
3: and, um, you know, the Knicks. And, um, you really think that LeBron's going to give a shit about that? Come on. The rest of the pitch included a discussion on how LeBron could become a billionaire if he played in New York, how committed Dolan was to spending to build a winner, and how LeBron will fit into Tony's offense. At one point, Leon Rose asked Donnie Walsh and Glenn Grunwald how many max free agents the Knicks could fit under the salary cap.
7: I showed him how we could give two max contracts. I guess he looked at the cap. It wasn't apparent to him that we could do that. So I said, we can do that. And we went to Chicago after that. And then Glenn and he met and he showed it to him. So he knew that we could do it.
3: Now, it had been rumored for months, even years in some places, that LeBron wanted to play with at least one other superstar, likely Dwayne Wade. The fact that Leon Rose had to ask the Knicks whether the team could sign another max-salary free agent showed a lack of preparation. Tom Withers from the Associated Press.
8: I remember hearing then, days after, that the New York presentation did not go very well, that they did, do, they did not wow LeBron and his people.
3: While talking to reporters after the meeting, the Knicks traveling party tried to portray a sense of confidence. Mike D'Antoni. Uh, we tried to put him in a New York state of mind. And,
8: uh, you know, hopefully it worked out. But uh, good meeting, like Donnie said, and, and uh, you know, cautiously
3: optimistic. D'Antoni would later say that he'd be shocked if LeBron didn't choose the Knicks. In the days between the meeting and the decision, there were a few positive signs to give Knicks fans hope. LeBron's Yankees hat returned. He was spotted wearing his favorite hat around Cleveland. The day before the decision, traders on Wall Street drove MSG's stock price up more than 6%. And the volume of trades that day on MSG's stock was five times the daily average. That was seen as some indication that maybe LeBron was coming. But really, the biggest tease of all was a location that LeBron chose for his televised event.
8: When we first heard Connecticut, we're thinking, oh, it's New York.
3: Obviously, that, that got things stirring. The day before the decision, Tom Withers was covering LeBron at his annual Nike basketball camp in Ohio. It was at that camp, with LeBron in attendance, that word came out that he would make his decision at the Boys and Girls Club of Connecticut of all places.
8: And the day started down there, and that's when his PR guy, Keith Esterbrook at the time, uh, came up to me and said, yeah, we're, this is going to be in Connecticut. And I said, well, why is it in Connecticut? What, what is the tie-in here? And when we first heard Connecticut, we're thinking, oh, it's New York, because <laughs> New York is right up the, the metro line or whatever it is, you know, from there.
3: The Greenwich Boys and Girls Club is a 30-minute drive from the Knicks practice facility in Westchester. It's even a shorter helicopter ride to midtown Manhattan. Looking back now, the location of the decision in the leafy suburbs of Connecticut was a strange choice. But at that time, for Knicks fans like CP from Knicks Fan TV, it was a sign that the King was coming to New York. And the rumors were just piling up and fever
6: pitch. And, you know, he's going to make this decision that behind the Knicks practice facility in Greenwich, Connecticut, at the Boys and Girls Club and, you know, every media outlet that that you listen to, whether it's ESPN or the local sports radio, everybody's got a source that says he's coming here. It's, it's, it's you know, LeBron is going to come. And and it was just, um, you're like, oh, my God, you know, this is it. We're finally going to get the guy. We're finally going to get the savior of New York. And I remember that night, I couldn't sleep. The night
3: before the decision, I couldn't sleep. Despite the location of the decision, one prominent member of the Knicks front office was not hopeful.
7: I didn't feel like, you know, you didn't get like, this guy wants to come to New York out of it. He was being very professional, with very good reception. I wouldn't even say he was detached, but it wasn't like, you can see when guys want to come. And uh, I didn't see that. that. That's the best way
3: to describe it. In their meeting in Cleveland, Donny Walsh felt a distance from LeBron. He describes LeBron as being polite, but there wasn't much feedback on what the Knicks were pitching. And so Knicks owner James Dolan made a decision himself to work to get LeBron's attention one more time. Dolan summoned Walsh into his office. He then called Isaiah Thomas on the phone, the man Walsh replaced, to see if Isaiah could fly from Florida to Ohio to meet with LeBron's team for a final pitch.
7: Dolan asked Isaiah to go up to see if he could do something. And he never did it because I think he already got word. And I kind of thought that I thought the guy already had made up his mind. I didn't say that, but I kind of thought that way. And then Isaiah, I think, tried to do it, but he found out the same thing so he didn't do it. And so we knew he was going to Miami, I guess.
3: Walsh is left having to sit there and listen in while Dolan the owner of the team asked the guy who used to have Walsh's job if he could save the LeBron situation. Of course, we now know that enlisting Isaiah for help and the Yankees' hat and MSG's stock price jumping and the Connecticut location of the decision, none of it mattered. On July 8th, 2010, LeBron nervously sits down across from Jim Gray and says he has taken his talents to South Beach. Chris Prasad
2: I think it really ultimately came down to who he was going to be able to team up with and win with. Because remember, that monkey was really on LeBron's back of needing to win a championship. And so that if the Knicks could have been able to have a pitch that would have convinced him that he was going to be able to win a championship, they would have stood a better chance. But he knew enough to know that it looks like they weren't going to have the team around him. For him to be able to win, it would have been all on him again.
3: Think about all the attention. Not only the Knicks, but New York City itself. Heaped on the LeBron for years. The Knicks essentially promised LeBron that by coming to New York, he'd become a billionaire. The team had some of the most famous people in the world. Oscar winners, billionaires, Fortune 500 CEOs, New York City sports legends. Selling LeBron on all the great things he could accomplish by calling New York home. And it shocked Walsh that LeBron wasn't interested in becoming the king of New York. I
7: didn't see the interest that LeBron had in New York. I just didn't. And I couldn't understand it in a way, because to me, when I went to New York, I was thinking that any free agent would want to go there, because if you go there and you play the way those guys can, it's going to be fabulous for you. It didn't seem we are getting that kind of a reception.
3: The Knicks sold LeBron on celebrity, wealth, and the garden. They sold New York, but what LeBron wanted more than anything else was to win. The Athletic's David Aldridge.
0: I mean, 2010, I guess would be kind of like the ultimate rebuke of everything that Knicks fans thought their their franchise stood for and represented. And there's reasons why that happened. It's not as cut and dried as that, but just kind of the end result. I think, you know, this is how far the Knicks have fallen, that they're not even seriously considered by really anybody. And then they had to throw money at Amari to get him to go there. The Knicks fans believe that everybody wants to play in New York and play for the Knicks. I mean, it's just, they can't understand that why the Knicks don't have 400 people on their team. Uh, because everybody wants to play for the Knicks. You know, everybody wants to live in New York. It's the greatest city in the world. Why would you want to live anywhere
1: else?
3: The Knicks could sell everything but winning. They lost under Scott Layden. They lost under Isaiah Thomas. They lost under Donnie Walsh as he stripped down the team to make space for LeBron. The team is almost burdened by its own geographical advantage. We are the Knicks. We are New York. Of course stars want to play here. Because the Knicks are able to sell New York, it creates a culture where on-the-court success isn't everything. And without winning being the Knicks North Star, the franchise ends up lost in the woods of the NBA. In the next episode of Shattered, we'll look at two dramatic moments in the Knicks history, melodrama and Linsanity.
4: Guys were bonded through their faith during Linsanity. Yeah, I'm not going to say, like, we won basketball games because God wanted us to, uh, but there
3: was a magic to it. It was, it was powerful. Much more on that next time on Shattered. Subscribe to Shattered wherever you get your podcast. To check out more great stories about sports and culture, plus ad-free episodes of Shattered, go to theathletic.com forward slash Shattered to get a special offer on a monthly subscription. Shattered is part of The Athletic's culture coverage.
2: Shattered is executive produced by Chuck D, Lori Bula, and Matt Havia. Mike Smeltz is the producer. JP Hesser is the engineer. Tayo Papula is the audio editor.